0: Welcome to the Indy Matters podcast, where we talk about the issues that matter most to Nevada. I'm John Ralston, the editor of the Nevada Independent. Each week, we'll discuss matters of importance that we covered and look ahead to what's coming in the Nevada Independent. We're a nonprofit news site. You can find us at thenevadaindependent.com. That's thenevadaindependent.com. I'm joined today on Indy Matters by two of our reporters, Jackie Valley and Megan Messerly. Say hello, guys. Hey, John. Hello. It was another week, uh, supposed to be slow this time of year, but it seems like there's no such thing as a slow news week, and uh, let's start with the biggest local story uh, uh, in a while, Jackie, that you covered, and you covered the run-up to it, too, which was this sudden announcement... Uh, this week by Pat Skorkowski, the superintendent of the Clark County School District, uh, that he has decided to retire when his contract expires in the middle of, of, of next year. Uh, I, I, I think the run-up to this, people should know, there's been this terrible budget crisis, there's been all this finger-pointing, and that internally, we'll give people a little glimpse inside how uh, the Indy works. Uh, the, the day after you uh, wrote us another story about this, we heard you got notified of an important press conference, and we immediately speculated, oh, my goodness, he might be resigning. We prepared for that, and then it turns out that's what happened.
1: Yeah, I mean, for anyone paying attention to the education news the past few months, um, it wouldn't have come as a total surprise that he wanted out. Uh, he's mentioned in several public meetings that, you know, he's getting very few hours of sleep, and, you know, just even looking at him, you could tell that this, the stress was catching up with him Um you know, before the budget crisis became a factor, they were dealing with the reorganization and all the hassles and headaches that have gone along with that. So those are two major things that the district is grappling with right now. And, you know, I think he just came to the point where he thought, okay, I'm going to reach my 30 years in June, got my maximum PERS retirement, and let's call it a day.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's it's an almost impossible job to be a superintendent of a huge school district like that. You, you don't get all the funding that that, that you want ever. Uh, but usually when you have somebody like a superintendent or a county manager or a city manager decide the lead, one of the things that usually has happened is they've lost the faith of maybe close to a majority of, of, of that board. Uh, five of the trustees were there with him mm-hmm. when he made this announcement, is that right?
1: Yeah, so, and that was an interesting aspect too because there's been a lot of tension on the board and between the members. So two trustees, uh, Chris Garvey and Kevin Child, have been vocal critics of the superintendent and things he's done or not done in the past few months. There's been some rather testy confrontations between a few of them in the public during these meetings. And so yesterday, uh, they weren't there. They weren't invited. Um, Skorkowski had met with the five other trustees, all women who he described as his friends and mentors, and they were beside him. Uh, At least Deanna Wright knew with some lead time that this was what he was thinking and planning and writing you know, statement prepared statements to announce his decision. So it was a little bit awkward, uh, to say the least. I, you know, when we heard that there was some sort of a dis, uh, announcement coming, I reached out to a couple of trustees, including uh, Kevin Child, and. He responded to me with a series of question marks. He didn't even know about it. Um, and it happened to be done at a school in his district. So that didn't go over well with him. So, yeah, I mean, you can see the tension, although, you know, I would say that he does have the support of the majority of members. But those two other members have been very difficult to work with for him.
0: I guess what I'm wondering too is, some people might not understand, this budget deficit is, is somewhat substantial, mm-hmm. right? What's the latest estimate?
1: The latest estimate is probably close to $60 million, but what they're saying is they'll have to cut $80 million probably to offset spending that has already occurred during the first few months of this fiscal year.
0: And you can go on, on, on the website, NevadaIndependent.com. Jackie's written a lot about this, and there has been finger pointing, but how could the superintendent possibly be responsible for, for a budget deficit? I mean, it, 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 the budget deficit is either because of uh, uh, personnel costs or not enough money coming from the state. How does How does Skorkowski take the blame for that? Yeah,
1: I mean, I think that's the question. Although, if you talk to Chris Garvey, Kevin Child, or some of the union members, they say, well, he should have seen this coming, and we should have known sooner. Um, so maybe it's more a matter of the suddenness of it.
0: Not disclosing it in, in, in yeah, advance to Yeah, yeah.
1: And, and Skorkowski basically acknowledged that and said, you know, I apologize for not bringing this to your attention sooner. I should have noticed that this was indeed a coming reality, and instead, the board you know, found out in early July after the tentative and final budgets had already been approved for the fiscal year. So it's turned into this whole mess. Um, I spoke to uh, Sylvia Lazos from Educate Nevada Now yesterday, and she had an interesting point. She said, you know, look at everything the district was trying to do this past year in terms of the reorganization and such, and that's taken so many manpower hours. You know, it's possible it was just sort of an oversight. You know, they were looking at all these other things and maybe just – didn't see the, the gravity of the coming deficit as they were trying to sh- shuffle more funding to the local school level as opposed to the central office.
0: A couple more quick things on this uh, before we move on to a different topic, because this is so interesting, because he is such a, uh, a central figure in, in the school district. A couple of the unions, the, the, the administrators union and, and, and the local education association, all but today. Uh, uh, thanks for staying around, Pat. See you later. Don't let the door hit you kind of statements, right?
1: Yeah, I mean, it was almost a a victory applause for them, in a sense. Uh, They didn't show any remorse
0: to see him. Why didn't they like him? Is that just typical labor management, or is there something more going on there?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think it is— I think the administrators union was really upset that Skorkowski has been public about how arbitration costs are driving this deficit. And the administrators union won an arbitration victory that was costing the district millions of dollars. So I think, you know, they felt like they were getting the blame put on them and making, you know, the principals, administrators look bad, essentially. So, you know, they came out attacking the superintendent then for this. Uh, Meanwhile, the teachers union is locked in a very bitter arbitration battle with the district right now. Lots of uncertainty about what will happen with health care. The union wants to keep its trust, which is a nonprofit that's been struggling, though. Uh, But meanwhile, the district is saying, let's bring all the teachers over to a united health care plan. So there's a lot of like inner politics at play. And I think what you're seeing is the results of some of these ongoing uh, arbitration battles,
0: <laughs> and and the union, especially the Clark County Education Association, which is very supportive of the so-called reorganization, uh, has seen uh, Skorkowski as as slow walking this as being an impediment to this, the whole school board and the administration there, right? They're resistant to change. That's been their perception?
1: Yeah, I think that's been their perception. I I mean, I think it's a little bit difficult to lump the superintendent into that. I think a lot of it was stemming from the trustee's uncertainty or hesitancy with it all. But you know, unfortunately, he reports to trustees. So (laughs) there you have it.
0: So what now? Uh, He's still got, uh, uh, what, 10 months or so uh, left on his contract. And so it's kind of a lame duck. And are they going to do a search in the interim, tell people what they're doing?
1: Well, he says he's not a lame duck. And (laughs) interestingly, I mean, he was the most candid I've ever seen him yesterday and said that he's now free to speak his mind, which is a little unfortunate that he feels that way. Right. Um, So he uh, seems like he'll be kind of bent on trying to fix some things that he sees Um, in the next 10 months. Meanwhile, the trustees will be embarking on a search. However, that's shaping up to be the next battle because two of the trustees have already said that they don't want to spend the money on a national search, while other people are calling for a national search saying it's crucial that we bring in new, potentially innovative ideas from elsewhere in the country to really turn this district
0: around. You know, in its fifth largest school district, it would seem to make mm-hmm. sense to do a national search. Uh, but this is the same thing. This happens any government organization, right, when someone big leaves. Don't do a national search. It costs too much money. Do a national search. We need to get uh, the best candidate. It'll be interesting to see, Jackie, how candid Pat Skorkowski really is yeah. uh, uh, in, in the next 10 months. All right, Megan. I want to talk about a story uh, you had this week, uh, and uh, this is a very, very uh, interesting lawsuit uh, that you've reported on that comes out of something you did a ton of reporting on during this session, maybe the most interesting political issue of the session. Now, I admit that that's a low bar to get over during this past <laughs> session, which was not that interesting a session. But this battle over the so-called pharmaceutical transparency uh, bill, which which was passed and signed into law by, by, by the governor after he uh, vetoed an initial version. Of it that was sponsored by a Democratic state senator, then signed uh, version of that that was sponsored uh, by a Republican uh, state senator. We knew that they were going to try to slow this down either through the regulatory process or through the courts. You did a long piece. You should go on the site because if anybody uh, has diabetes, knows somebody with diabetes, or is interested in this whole issue, uh, Megan knows this issue inside now. And and she did a long explainer about what's in uh, that lawsuit. So. Let's let's without getting too far into the weeds, which I know you love to do. <laughs> uh, I'll restrain myself for, for 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 the purposes of this podcast. Uh, Are these new issues? Are they issues that we expected to come up after the session, a combination of both?
2: Right. So what happened on Friday was pharma and bio, these two really big, you know, pharmaceutical trade groups um, filed a lawsuit against the state, you know, um, claiming that one particular provision of this bill that passed um, is unconstitutional. And, you know, like you were saying, you know, these aren't new concerns. Obviously, the industry was opposed to the bill the entire session. You know, there there were talks, there were conversations. Um you know, they were discussing amongst themselves what they could do. Um, there were talks with uh, these this other group called pharmacy benefit managers, who also play a role in the drug price setting process. They go, they're sort of the go between between um, insurers and pharmacies and manufacturers. So, so there was a lot of talk about this this bill, and obviously, it was sort of a months long protracted conversation. Um, but what what ended up happening is is they passed this bill that um, that targeted both pharmaceutical manufacturers, so people who manufacture what are called essential diabetes drugs. Um, and then also these pharmacy benefit managers. When so, you say
0: targeted, you mean make make them more transparent. Yes. What what yeah. So
2: the, those were the two focal points of the bill, and it requires them to do all this data reporting um, about the wh- how they set prices and, and things like that, which obviously you know the, the industry is concerns about from just sort of a competitive standpoint about you proprietary
0: know proprietary information, exactly. etc.
2: Right. So they they filed this lawsuit, which I, I think everyone kind of expected at some point they would file a lawsuit. I think the state was a little caught off guard about how early it came on in the process. Process. I had actually talked to the state earlier in the week about implementation. And they had told me, actually, the pharmaceutical industry has been really cooperative. They've been bringing forward suggestions and little things here and there. And, you know, we were prepared to run a story over the weekend saying, you know, actually, you'd think that the, the pharmaceutical industry is, you know, sort of being a thorn in the side of the state, but they've actually been cooperating with HHS as implementation has gone forward. Then I found out on, on Thursday that that um, pharma had come in and threatened a lawsuit the state had asked them, you know, hey, come back to us with your concerns. Don't file the lawsuit yet. And that was sort of everyone's understanding on Friday until it was like 7 p.m. I got an email from the, the pharma spokeswoman saying, you might want to take a look at this. And it was, you know, the complaint. And they had filed the lawsuit against the state.
0: And I guess what I'm, what I'm, what I'm wondering about is you mentioned this early on about it being unconstitutional. Explain to people what they're – I mean, are they – part of what they're – well, let me slow down here. The price controls aspect of the original bill was taken out before it was even sent to the governor. Originally, Uh, they're arguing partly that these are de facto price controls because they have to release all this data.
2: That's that's exactly what's happening. And and so pharma has challenged um, price controls that have been implemented in other places. There's a a major lawsuit in Washington D.C. When Washington D.C. tried to implement some price controls, you know, and pharma made these arguments saying, you know, you you can't control the price of drugs. There's you know violates multiple parts of the Constitution, which. I won't get into now, but you can go and look online if you want to see sort of the arguments and how they're made. And so this is something they've argued with actual price control. So this is actual legislation that says, you know, when the price of your drug increases by X amount, like, you have to refund that amount. You can't, you just can't do it. And this original bill did include a provision like that. But legislative lawyers did raise some concerns. They sort of agreed with the industry that there might be constitutional concerns and that generally when, you know, actual price control provisions have been challenged in court, they've usually been struck down. So it was sort of the legislative attorney's opinion that there were some constitutional concerns. And so that part was taken out of the bill. But now what the industry is doing is arguing that this is an effective cap um, what the bill does, because the the bill essentially, if uh, manufacturers raise their prices by a certain amount, they have to make all these information disclosures. So what the manufacturers are arguing is that well you know this is going we don't want to disclose that information it's proprietary it's confidential it's you know going to give our competitors an advantage we want to do everything we can to avoid that scenario therefore we're going to keep our prices below that cap so they argue that it creates an effective cap therefore it has all those same constitutional concerns that they've argued before with you know actual in-law caps.
0: So uh this this uh this affects a lot of people uh, in Nevada. How many how many people could this affect in Nevada this, it's, the, 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 it's- Take insulin?
2: Yeah, I mean it's it's thousands, hundreds of thousands. You know, there it's a significant portion of the population, and it's something that's that's growing. It's only you know getting getting worse.
0: Do we think? And, and you did a lot of reporting on this, as I mentioned during the session. Is the pharmaceutical industry worried about this just because of the insulin component, and because of the what they're calling the de facto price controls, or is this do you think more globally considered a nose under the tent? We would be the first. We were the first state, I think, to pass this a law of, like this. Mm-hmm. Uh, that this then catches on like wildfire. and other states would use this as a model? Is it both? Is it right. more of one than the other?
2: I mean, it's both, but I think it is, you know, bigger picture, that broader concern that, you know, if it starts here, even though it's not a cap, you know, it's just these transparency requirements, you know, it's a concern that it could be a slippery slope. And, you know, maybe you start with transparency requirements and then, you know, maybe the data shows that, you know, maybe manufacturers are responsible for X percent of the price increases, you know, and that data is out there. And then that gives, you know, the Nevada legislature, you You know the information it needs in the future to go forward and maybe implement a cap or something like that. And then you know even outside of Nevada, like you were mentioning, obviously it gives other states sort of a precedent in which to do this. And if they so if they don't challenge it in Nevada, you know what's to stop every other state from from falling suit and requiring these disclosures? And interestingly enough, another point that they make in the lawsuit is that the Nevada law actually. Impacts the other 49 states because of this um, trade secret provision. It exempts this data if they have to disclose it. It exempts it from the state's trade secret law, and they argue, well, you know, if we have to make it public in Nevada, that basically, you know, nullifies. It doesn't matter, you know, what's accessible in Nevada is accessible to someone in Pennsylvania or Indiana or or wherever. So it essentially, you know, exempts that information from all the other states' trade secret laws because it's just, you know, publicly accessible information once it's disclosed here.
0: This is filed in state court, correct?
2: It's it's the federal court. it's a, fe- court. Mm-hmm. It's, a
0: fe- it's a federal lawsuit. Yeah. Uh, and, and, and the governor uh, provided you, his office, with a very supportive uh, statement of the law yes. and said that he expects, I believe what he said, is he expects the attorney general to vigorously defend this, correct?
2: Yeah, vigorously defend was the phrase he used. Um, I have not heard back from the attorney general's office about you know, what their what their plan is for the lawsuit, but the governor, you know, was really supportive. He he had concerns with the original bill, but, you know, he's even commended um, the original sponsor of the bill, uh, Democratic Senator Ivana Kinsella, for, you know, taking his concerns as uh, spelled out in the veto message, you know, taking that into account folding her bill into, um, you know, Republican Senate Leader Michael Roberson's bill. And so he was very laudatory um, at the bill signing. You know, he mentioned that his grandfather had diabetes. This was a personal issue for him, something he had never, you know, mentioned while the negotiations were happening. But, you know, he said what, what a great thing this would be if it could provide more information to consumers to make, you know, smart health care decisions. Um, so he's been very supportive of the, the final version of the bill that he signed and, you know, was very, uh, you know, staunchly said we will fight this lawsuit and do everything we can. And your
0: story, which people can read, I said, is a very extensive explainer on the NevadaIndependent.com. You had a quote from Senator Cancella who said she was, I think, you know, disappointed but not surprised. Uh, has Senator Roberson, who's the actual sponsor of the bill, said anything so far?
2: Unless I missed something, I don't <laughs> believe he has said anything about, about the bill. But I mean, one of the interesting things too is he, he praised the bill on the Senate floor as well. There were sort of, I, I remember being in the Senate and everyone was just saying how wonderful everyone was. It was, this moment where you you really did have a Democrat and Republican coming together to to create the final version of this bill so everyone is sort of you know, c- celebrating it, um, and and Michael Roberson's component of the bill was that other pharmacy benefit manager transparency aspect, which he and the, the governor believed needed to be a part of it. So it'll be interesting to see, you know, as this moves forward, what the what the sort of conversation surrounding it is like.
0: It, it's possible that Senator Roberson was too busy out uh, collecting signatures door to door in one of those recall campaigns. <laughs> Who knows? Anyhow, um, uh, Jackie, uh, you you uh, uh, covered uh, a big announcement this week. Mm-hmm. A constitutional officer announced that he is running for the highest constitutional office. Uh, what happened there? Yeah,
1: um, Treasurer Dan Schwartz announced that he's jumping into the race for governor. So it's sort of throwing a, a new twist in the Republican end of this race. Um, of course, it's been widely speculated that Attorney General Adam Laxalt is going to enter at some point. We just don't know when. Uh, he's sort of been the uh, obvious candidate all along, the most talked about, I guess you could say. Um, but Schwartz, who is sort of a wild card up in Carson City, uh, decided that you know, he's going to plant his flag in this race too and enter. Um, He spoke before a group of Republicans at the Nevada GOP Men's Club at Valley High Golf Course on Tuesday morning. Uh, You know, I would say the group, it was interesting because the group itself was receptive to hearing him, but I wouldn't say that there was rampant enthusiasm in the room for this announcement. Um, But nonetheless, you know, Schwartz delivered a whole set of remarks and then took some questions and uh, really hammered at home the point that he, he wants to get the lobbyists and special influences out of Nevada politics. He's
0: really running an anti-establishment yes. campaign. Laxalt yes. is seen as the establishment candidate, and so he's he's going right for for that for that position mm-hmm. in the primary right away, right?
1: Yeah, I mean he hammered that point home. You know, both during his prepared remarks and then separately with a bunch of media, and you know just gave some examples and but it was funny because when we asked him if he was going to run on that platform he was like, well, no, I'd really prefer not to. I'd prefer it to be an issue-oriented campaign, but we'll see how Adam behaves.
0: <laughs> see how Adam behaves. That sounds just like the <laughs> Dan Schwartz we know, right, Megan? So yeah. uh, I, I, I guess some people probably – most people probably don't know that much about the treasure. And and and, and you and Riley Snyder, uh, I, I believe, also did the, the kind of an on-the-record look at some of what Dan Schwartz has done. Tell people a little bit about Dan Schwartz and what he's done as Treasury. You mentioned uh, some of the – stuff. you alluded to some of the stuff he's done, but the legislature uh, – uh, he is not well-liked up there.
1: Yeah, yeah. No, he can kind of be a thorn in people's <laughs> sides. So uh, he's actually you know, very well-educated, went to several Ivy League uh, institutions, worked abroad. No, uh, not so- a
0: lesser school such as Berkeley. He went to, he went to where, <laughs> <laughs> where Megan went. <laughs> yeah, he went to several. Um,
1: <laughs> so you know, he has this interesting perspective um, and working abroad, businessman. Um, but up in the legislature, he has been an avid, avid champion of education savings accounts, you know, to the point where he was sort of going rogue uh, trying to set this up and get it in motion despite the litigation earlier this year. So obviously that came up in his remarks. He's big on getting that up and going. In fact, he went as far as saying that, you know, unless there's a bill on my desk, I'm not signing any other legislation if I'm governor. And it it was funny because he said it could be a very quiet session. And Nevada residents might be very mad at me, but it is what it is. Uh, So he's certainly running on that platform as well. Uh, He touched on other things such as taxes. He said he's against both the corporate and personal income tax. Uh, He also brought up the stadium. He's been against that sort of from the Um, get-go. It was a little unclear exactly what his motives were with that, though, because he said I want to lower the amount that it's going to cost to build the stadium, but I know I can't do anything about that $750 million contribution.
0: So I mean, that's just, the public money, in case yeah. So that's forgot. yeah,
1: that's the public money of this deal that was approved by lawmakers um, that he's been angry about since then. But essentially, he sort of wants to reroute some of that money to other purposes. Um, it just I couldn't quite rationalize how, if you want to bring down the cost but not do anything about the public contribution, how that would really have a greater Broader effect, um, but those were some of the things he hit upon.
0: Uh, Megan, tell I mean, you 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 were there during the session last time. Dan Schwartz is really not liked up there, including by no. Republi- uh, many Republicans, including Michael Roberson, whom you mentioned earlier, who's running for lieutenant governor. Uh, they have had they've had some notable public spats. I mean. Yeah. And and both sides uh, I don't think really are fans of Dan Schwartz, right? Yeah,
2: I mean it seemed like every time you know the the treasurer's office well actually it was sort of a funny comparison because every time the treasurer's office pretty much had something to do Dan Schwartz would show up himself which was sort of a contrast to every time the attorney general's office was just both to make a presentation um, attorney general Adam Laxalt never came and you know Democrats are always saying where's where's Laxalt he's he, he never shows up well in contrast Dan Schwartz always shows up so he was always coming in to to testify about x thing or y thing the treasurer. Nope. Knowing he was going to take doing. heat
0: from the legislators too, yes, knowing too.
2: full well, and every single time, <clears throat> you know, it was it was criticizing him over this or that, and. I think, too, just watching the interaction with, with between him and lawmakers, there's just an inherent friction there. You know, he just says things in a way that irks them, um, you know, because he kind of does his own thing. And he, he, I don't think he really honestly cares, you know, too much about, about what they think. And um, thinking about his relationship with Republicans, I mean, the other notable example is sort of with Faraday. He was sort of this, you know... Canary in a coal mine, if you want to call him that, sounding the alarms about Faraday and sort of a thorn in everyone's side. You know, they were saying, you know, Faraday's fine. It's it's a great deal. You know, bringing this electric car manufacturer to the state is going to be, you know, this great economic boon. And you know, he was saying, well. You know, I have concerns about X and Y, and uh, he actually took a trip to China, not on treasure business, but just a personal trip right, and looked into wife. Faraday while while he was there. <laughs> so this is sort of gives you an idea of what kind of a person Dan Schwartz is. He sort of spends his free time, you know, looking looking into things and traveling abroad to figure out what's going on. And so that was, you know, another area where, you know, Republicans were largely supportive of that of that deal, um, at, at least the majority of them. And you had sort of Dan Schwartz and, and some other Republicans saying, hey, you know, maybe this isn't a good idea. Maybe we should be giving all these texts. Breaks.
1: He also comes across fairly moderate on some of the social issues that got brought up in this uh, media interview with him, which, by the way, he was sat back, had some water in front of him, and was freely speaking for 45 minutes. Could have gone way longer if we had let him. Um, But, you know, abortion got brought up, and, you know, he very simply said, Well, I don't think the government should pay for it, but, you know, I know some people might pass moral judgment on this, but, you know, if you want it, pay for it. So he wasn't against the idea. He very clearly articulated that, just that, you know, let's not use tax money to do it.
0: Adam Laxalt's very conservative on uh, on social issues. And so really what, what Schwartz, it seems clear to me, is going to do is just try to run at him as he's a tool of special interests. He'll bring up Sheldon Adelson, his biggest supporter. He's done that uh, before and hope to win like the, the Trump voters, maybe, mm-hmm. who, would, who, are, who are going to be uh, 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 voting in great numbers in that primary. I guess what I'm wondering, though, Jackie, Dan Schwartz is also very, very wealthy. He put a lot of money in when he ran for Congress, a lot of money in when he ran. For treasure, in fact, he took very few contributions either time. Now, I think he's thrown a. Uh, you correct me if I'm wrong. He's thrown around the number of half a million dollars, mm-hmm. which I think is about what he put into to those races. Correct? Yeah. So
1: he said that he was committed to putting in five hundred thousand dollars of his own money for the primary part of the race. You know, he'd reevaluate what would be needed for the general. Uh, he didn't entirely close the door on taking money from others. uh, Because of course, you know, it got brought up, well, if you know you're blasting Laxalt for taking money, are you going to not do the same? Or, you know, where do you draw the line? So it'll be interesting to see how he makes that decision if people want to Ante up lots of money for him.
0: Yeah, it's going to be an interesting race because Laxalt will have way more than five hundred thousand dollars, and and uh, and he'll have. We already know because as as the RJ reported, right as Schwartz was announcing, there's already a super PAC essentially that's formed that has ties to Adelson and, and the Ricketts family, who are big supporters of Laxalt. In fact, the guy who organized the PAC, our own Riley Snyder, pointed out uh, uh, actually helped organize uh, the fundraiser, in these. So that's just going to be a fascinating race to watch just do a little bit of a segue here you were over there at ballet high did you look around and say this would be a great place for parking spaces for a stadium jackie
1: (laughs) we did we did i looked around and you know i guess the only thing is you yes there's lots of parking but you have to like get binoculars to see like where the stadium is it's far yeah yeah i mean i it would be a tough walk on a hot august september day
0: yeah, and, and and that's that's li- it's likely to be hot uh, when when the NFL season uh, begins. Uh, there was there was some activity on the stadium this week.
1: Yes, there was. So uh, the county approved a whole bevy of land use permits, so that kind of sets the construction end of this in progress a little bit. Um, interestingly, they waived uh, some of the parking requirements and brought it down to like, you know, a very very small percentage of parking for this actual site located at you know russell and uh 15 so they kind of are turning a blind eye to the parking situation for the time being um and meanwhile uh the raiders are supposedly working and looking at a variety of options um but But there's nothing
0: there yet there's nothing done yet no
1: there's absolutely nothing set in stone um and they haven't you know other than Valley high they haven't Articulated tons of other options, um, and they said they didn't really want to do so for, you know, negotiating purposes. Uh, So that's, you know, looming as still a battle. Um, And Steve Hill, the chairman of the Las Vegas Stadium Authority, said that he expects to have some sort of parking presentation at one of these upcoming board meetings. Um, It's been talked about a little bit, but he feels like it it needs more of a conversation, and with some firm options laid out for everyone to see.
0: And, and we reported, uh, and Riley Snyder reported this in his story. This is like an Only in Nevada uh, story where Jay Brown who has represented Bally High and and Billy Walters, uh, who was now convicted and going to prison uh, for many years. Now, since February, apparently, has also been re- representing the Raiders. So maybe they can make a deal now. Jay Brown is known as you know maybe the greatest deal maker in in in, in local government history. He can get almost anything done. He's got ties uh, to, to 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 Harry Reid. But uh, this, I, I think I have this number right, Jackie. It's like eighty five percent is is the number less than what the requirement is right. for parking that they let the Raiders yeah, have. Yeah,
1: so they're letting them off the hook, you know, by a long shot. And, you know, the Raiders are saying, well, we don't want a garage or anything like that because that would be detrimental to tailgating. Um, you know, and then some, you know, stadium supporters are saying, well, good. We don't want tons of parking up there anyway because that would just create a disaster on the highway in that area. Um, so there's definitely lots of that play. Lots of at play here. Um, But, yeah, for those paying close attention, uh, the introduction of Jay Brown into this whole dynamic Mm -hmm. adds a new layer and definitely points toward Bally High being you know, the leading contender for this solution. And,
0: and, and Bally High at one time uh, was considered a possible site for the stadium itself. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Billy Walters had talked when Sheldon Adelson was involved in that to his people. Speaking of uh, really incendiary local zoning issues, uh, Megan, you you covered a city council today on this Badlands golf course issue, which has gone round and round for months now, which because some homeowners got so irate, they essentially decided to end Bob Beers's career on the city council and were successful. And now his successor Wants to do some things coincidentally uh, uh, that, that the the Badlands developer does not like. Correct?
2: Yes. So this item popped up on the agenda. It was was heard this week by City Council. Um, sort of the the brainchild of it behind it was uh, Councilman Steve Soroka, who replaced uh, Bob Beers during the election. Um, and so what what this you know agenda item essentially said is that it would impose a six month moratorium on developing any or redeveloping any golf courses or common open spaces. Um, so that would mean you know you can't move forward at all with with Badlands, which is, is sort of stalled right now. Um, and it it would have directed city staff during that six month period to study all of these sort of best practices for golf course redevelopment. So saying you know when when this comes forward, you need to have this public participation program. You need to get input from the local homeowners. Um, you need to get you know this environmental assessment done because this just sort of hadn't been done before. The city hasn't ever had an established framework for you know how you're supposed to go about redeveloping a golf course. Um, and this is something that, you know, people have been dealing with here, but also just nationwide as well as as these golf courses are are being shuttered. And so this proposal came before the city council and you know, as happens with, with these, you know, Badlands related issues, there's, you know, tons of neighbors who come out, you know, the, the people who live around the golf course who are concerned about having it be developed because the the proposal is to, you know, essentially take that land and develop homes and condominiums. So no longer do you live on this, you know, open golf course, you you have homes next to you, you know, it's sort of more dense. Um, So there are obviously a lot of residents who live in the area who are opposed to it. There were residents in the area who were supportive of it. You know, the developers came up. Um, It's sort of this you know, it, it turns into this sort of fiery back and forth every, every time it comes before the city council. But the interesting thing is that what ended up actually happening is the council didn't approve the moratorium. Um, they felt uncomfortable, mainly, with the word moratorium. Mayor Carolyn Goodman brought up this idea that, you know, we're, we're the city of growth and innovation and we're we're reinventing ourselves and sort of putting this word out that the, the city of Las Vegas has imposed a moratorium on any kind of development, she sort of thought would be counterintuitive to what the city is trying to do, and was concerned about the the signal that I would send to developers, and that was sort of the position that many of the other council members took as well, with the exception of um, council member Soroka and then um, Bob Coffin as well. They were sort of the two who were supportive of this this moratorium and having the city move forward. So basically, the city's going to move forward, do a study, but you know all development can continue, you know, as planned for now.
0: You know, this is interesting because I think most people listening to this or even following this issue, this is really a super rich versus rich issue, right? Most of these people who live on the, on the golf course are fairly wealthy and of yes. course the developer is very wealthy. But there are some really interesting issues. One of the ones is the one Carolyn Goodman brought up as a signal uh, it sends. But the other one is the one that I think the developers brought up and comes up in a lot of zoning cases is that how much power does government have to take Another, In other words, uh, the value of that land and really reduce it, which I think if if they continue to press us, it sounds to me like the developer will sue them.
2: Yeah. I mean, the, the developers obviously have concerns. They've already um, sued over one portion of it, but they, they do have concerns over, you know, what is what does it mean to own property? You know, what are your rights with that property? And, and they really do feel like, um, you know, the city of Las Vegas is or could be impinging on those rights. You know, one of the things, too, that they mentioned is that even though they decided not to implement this more moratorium, you know, the the city still has sort of broad leeway to, you know, delay these items, you know, to say, come back with this, come back with that. You know, there are a lot of ways these things can be stalled. So the developer's concern is that there will still be an effective moratorium that the city still could say, you know, while the city staff is looking at this for six months, we want to delay this. And so even though it's not, you know, the sort of official six-month moratorium on everything, they could still just delay the process for Badlands further.
0: Uh, was there any talk or whispering? I mean, this I mean, obviously, quid pro quos or the appearance of those go go on in politics all the time. Here you have Beers, who was essentially siding with the developer. He gets ousted. The guy who beats him, Almost within, you know, a, a, a few minutes of getting elected is introducing something that the homeowners who ousted beers wanted, right?
2: Right? Well, and I, I mean, I think you can look at it a couple of ways. You could say, you know, yeah, these people supported him and got him elected, so he's just doing their bidding. At the same time, he sort of ran on this platform. That was one of the things he's just been really passionate about. So it sort of makes sense that he would introduce that kind of thing. So it's sort of you can't you can't draw a line there because you know that just is his position, and that's his his belief is that, um, you know there there should be more you know homeowner input and more homeowner considerations um, you know taken into account with all of this.
0: Yeah, it can mm-hmm. you can just be hurt by perceptions like that. You sure. can you can connect dots. Like that, a couple other stories I want to talk about uh, on the podcast. Uh, Jackie, you uh, um, t- just today where we are recording this on Friday, talked to former state treasurer Kate Marshall, who uh, initially I think was was interested in running for the U.S. Senate and was essentially told um, mm-hmm. uh, by the powers that be that. The we have someone else in mind for that. That would be Jackie Rosen. Now she's looking at another office.
1: Yeah. So I mean, we had a very brief phone conversation, but she was very cheerful and appreciative of the call, and said that she is very, very seriously looking into running. Two varies.
0: Two varies. So she's very serious. Yes. So she's very very serious that she
1: it, um, will consider a run for lieutenant governor. Um, she said that decision could be made next week, but she wouldn't give an exact day.
0: And she obviously has run statewide uh, before since she's a former state treasurer. She ran in a special election for Congress, lost to, to, to Mark Amaday. She's clearly wanted to get back in. The Democrats have clearly wanted to recruit a northern Nevada woman. I think they t- they, they talked to um, uh, Mayor Hil- Hillary Sheavey of, of of Reno, who's not even a Democrat, but I think they were going to try to fix that. Now Kate Marshall might get in against Michael Roberson, who we mm-hmm. we keep mentioning. Michael Roberson, we really like him <laughs> here on, on on this podcast, and uh, the Democrats just haven't had anybody, and so th- th- they have to be excited about about possibly getting somebody with Kate Marshall's experience. I would think.
1: Yeah, I mean, so this is you know the first major name floated out there for the Democrats' end of that card.
0: Exactly. Uh, Megan, uh, real quickly, an issue that's really fascinating to me, and I think to, it will be interesting to a lot of people uh, uh, listening to this podcast, is the American Gaming Association, which is the umbrella group that represents uh, uh, all the casinos here and some, some uh, elsewhere, has filed a, a, a brief with the U.S. Supreme Court on an issue that's been going on for decades. What's going on?
2: Yes. So there's this uh, sports betting case that the U.S. Supreme Court announced earlier that the summer that it was going to take up. Um, and basically, what the court uh, or what the, what the case asks is that it asked the court to look at the constitutionality of this federal sports betting law that essentially bans, you know, the Sports betting in, in every state except for Nevada. There's there's some exceptions, but the sort of traditional kind of sports betting is only allowed in Nevada because of this law. There's
0: something states, in there about Oregon. I know this is I'm bringing this up randomly. I think yeah. like Oregon was in there for some reason.
2: Yeah. So I mean, so other states can do like some kinds of sports betting, ah. but Nevada is the only one that gets to do the sort of full blown single wager, single okay. game wager type sports betting. Um, and so basically, what this the suit was brought forward by New Jersey. There's a couple of different suits that have gone forward, but New Jersey has wanted to, you know have sports betting for for a long time. And so this case is coming before the Supreme Court, you know, asking it to um basically it sort of comes down to this Tenth Amendment issue, like what are states' rights? You know, does Congress have the authority to tell states, you know, no, you can't you can't change your own laws to allow sports betting because in many cases, states have banned sports betting. um but but now what's happened is that states now can't go back in and repeal those own laws because Congress doesn't let them. And so this this case is asking the court to look at the constitutionality of that. Um, so this week, the American Gaming Association, which has been very supportive of, you know, opening opening up sports betting to the whole country, um, filed an amicus brief with the court saying, you know, we sort of agree with the logic in this case. We think that this is probably, you know, stepping on states' rights. Um, and so we, we sort of agree with the gist of this case. And, you know, we want you to look at these issues moving forward.
0: Which is a real sea change for the gaming industry over the years because sure. Nevada loved its monopoly, right? But now Nevada is not the only place that these guys do business, right?
2: Right, yeah. And sort of the AGA's the position is that, you know, there's so much illegal sports betting happening. The goal of this law was to crack down on illegal sports betting. That hasn't happened. The sort of black market industry has just flourished instead. And so their idea is that you know, if we pass this, if we if we make sports betting legal and, you know, as many other states as, as want to have it. So the important thing to note, too, would be states would have the individual option to allow sports betting. So, you know, say you're, you're Utah and you don't want sports betting, you don't have to have sports betting, but it gives you the option to to have it if, if you, the state wants to opt into it. Um, and so the AGA's argument has been, you know, just having sports betting available in other states isn't going to take away from Nevada's legal business. There's so much illegal activity happening that you're really going to be capturing that type of betting and not really cutting into Nevada's
0: market. It's going to be really interesting to see what the court decides on this. It's going to have far-reaching implications. All right, let's talk about what's coming uh, 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 on, on the Nevada Independence website. Jackie, what are you working on?
1: Hoping to do some stuff on DACA and look at how the school system is responding to students and, in some cases, even employees affected by this decision.
0: The, the big the DACA decision came down uh, this week with the with the president saying Congress fixed this in six months or I might do something else. So we're not exactly sure what he's he is going to do. Uh, the school district has the school district taken an official position on DACA?
1: They uh, basically just reiterated their position um, that they made in January that they're a safe place for students. Um, they're not going to, you know, break any privacy rights with students and their families. So, you know, students and parents should be feel free to be involved in the school setting. Uh, they also mentioned that counselors and support type staff would be available to students who are really having a difficult time coming to grips with this.
0: So you're looking into who these people are, how what their numbers are, and what the reaction is going to be.
1: Yeah, I'm trying to get a sense of, you know, how the school district, which is so large and has a huge Hispanic population, is really addressing this and dealing with it from the human side of it.
0: Sounds like a great piece, Megan. What are you working on?
2: Yeah, so uh, Michelle Rindells and I are working on a story for this weekend about um, REAP kit testing. Uh, sort of, you know, going through what's been done. There was obviously a lot of movement on it during the legislative session with this bill that was passed, and now extra money um, being allocated toward it. But at the same time, people are still raising concerns that, you know, going forward, this is going to be a broader funding concern. It's not just the actual testing of these kits that we need to focus on, but we need, you know, support for you know victims' advocates to be able to help, you know, people move forward as these cases. Move forward. We need investigators. We need prosecutors. So it's not just the money. You can test the kits all you want, but then to sort of move forward with the with the investigative and possibly legal process, you're going to need all this additional support staff. And, you know, everyone expects that as more and more of these kits are tested, there's going to be more and more, you know, hits in the, in the national database, the DNA database. Um, and so it's only going to be more of a demand on, you know, police departments and on, you know, local prosecutors to, to actually take these cases on.
0: The big issue with the rape kits in this state has been the backlog, which Which has existed for a long time. Mm -hmm. Uh, Adam Laxalt has 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 made some progress on this. The 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 attorney general, Uh, Catherine Cortez Masto, uh, uh, took some heat. For that battle backlog during her mm-hmm. uh, senate Senate race uh, and, and and so how 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 much of a backlog still exists here in the state?
2: Yeah, so I mean Metro has actually done a a good job chipping away at at some of it. So in in Southern Nevada there's about sixty five hundred cases um, and they've tested about twenty eight percent of those. So they're still working their way through. Um, but their goal is to basically get everything tested by twenty nineteen and you know based on sort of the timeline and and the outsourcing of those kits. There's a lab in Virginia they're using and based on how many you know that lab just has the capacity to process. They think they'll finally be able to get, you know, through everything by 2019 and then it becomes a matter of well now how do we have a system in place so that we're testing these routinely, you know, moving forward. Well,
0: I, I get maybe this has been addressed before and I'm sorry if I've missed it. Maybe some people are wondering the same thing I am. What about the degradation of, of of the evidence in in the rape kits over time? Is that a problem or not?
2: I haven't heard anything about that. The the big thing that um Metro's crime lab talks about is actually, you know, things have just gotten better with time. You know, whereas they needed to really, you know, large or really good sample of DNA to be able to extract the evidence from it. Now you can have, you know, a tiny pinprick of, of evidence and that's enough to extract DNA from. So I think, you know, coupled with the fact that technology is just getting, you know, better and better, it sort of allows Metro to analyze even that, you know, really old DNA.
0: Those both sound like great stories. Uh, uh, Jackie and Megan, uh, thanks for coming on the podcast uh, this week. Have a good weekend. That's all the time we do have. Uh, for this week's edition of the Indie Matters Podcast. We want to know what you think. If you have ideas, criticism, or even praise, email us at ideas at the com. That's ideas at the com. Check out the site. I've mentioned it a couple times, the nevadaindependent.com, uh, and rate us on iTunes. And please subscribe. We're all over the place. We're on Google Play, and uh, we're going to keep getting on uh, other platforms as well. Uh, As always, uh, I want to thank our wonderful hosts here at KUNV uh, on the beautiful UNLV campus. And as always, many thanks to our producer, Joey Lovato, who makes us all sound... Podcast smooth at least two of the three here sound podcast move. I'm John Ralston. Thanks as always for joining us and listening to Indie Matters. We'll talk to you next week.
2: like anchovy pasta that he would make and he didn't tell me there were anchovies in it.
0: (laughs) And then he found
2: out that there were anchovies and I was so upset. But it was really good pasta, so.